Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we welcome you along to the programme, we will be uh, discussing on the programme this morning what happened at uh, Bank of Ireland and the implications for people who saw it as free money and decided to head down to their nearest ATM and withdraw cash in many cases. Well, you're assuming in all of the cases it was cash that people didn't have in their accounts. It led to queues at ATM machines around the country. Now, Bank of Ireland this morning are out saying that the technical issue uh, which disrupted their online banking portal 365 online Uh, as well as its mobile banking app. That's all now been uh, resolved. They put up a post saying following the outage yesterday, uh, the app and the online are back working and they also want to point out that overnight payments uh, will be made into accounts throughout the day because, of course, when you get a, a major IT outage like this, a lot of the payments go through overnight. So people waiting on money that will be expecting to be in their account this morning because it would have transferred in overnight. You know, it may not be there. It may take a couple of hours uh, to be there. Now, Bank of Ireland obviously apologised for the disruption and they acknowledged that it fell far below the standards our customers expect uh, from us. And of course, when Garda Siakona became involved, they say they initially became aware of unusual volume of at, uh, of activity at some ATM machines across the country last night. Now, the Gardaí went on to remind people of their personal responsibility in carrying out their personal banking. But as we've seen, and you probably would have seen on social media yesterday, lots of reports of Gardaí manning ATM machines and not, not allowing people anywhere near the ATM machine, which I was just almost scratching my head saying, how does this, how did the Gardaí get involved in something like this. Now, if there was a riot and a rush on the bank and people were illegally, uh, well, I suppose some people would say, what was it, fraud? They were illegally taking money out that they knew they didn't have in, in their accounts. But of course, as we know, in those things, free money. They're going to have to pay all, all of the money back. So I don't quite understand uh, why the Gardaí played such a role as they did last night in physically manning ATM machines and standing outside ATM machines to stop people accessing them. Liam has already been on to us. There's questions must be asked as to why the Gardaí were not allowing people access their own cash which is a very fair and a valid question Liam he said I know this was unprecedented what happened but surely this is not a criminal matter Bank of Ireland is a privately owned bank are the Gardaí now agents of the bank says uh, Liam yeah and I suppose only time will tell it'll only probably come out today or in the weeks ahead who actually sanctioned the Gardaí who told the Gardaí to go down to all of the nearest ATMs because any queue that I saw outside an ATM looked like a very orderly queue people were queuing up as if they were 
queuing to buy tickets for a concert or they were queuing to get into a venue. I mean, it didn't look like there was there was a riot or there was any kind of people were, were being very pleasant and polite. You're next, you're next, you know, certainly from what I saw. So I don't know who made the decision to get the Gardaí to go down and disperse the people at the ATM machines. Connor is in Watergrass Hill and he says it's an absolute disaster involving the Gardaí in a, what he calls the uh, Bank of Ireland ATM debacle. Well, and the other one that got to me when I heard and saw the Gardaí at the machines was, you know, we've been talking a lot here on the programme about antisocial behaviour. I mean, in particular, a lot of the focus has been on antisocial behaviour in Dublin and we've had the tourists being uh, beaten up. But we've also had reports in of antisocial behaviour in, in our own uh, city here in Cork in the city centre. Not everybody feels safe. And most people would say you can see antisocial behaviour going on in, in towns and villages as well. And people all bemoan the fact that there's, enough guard, there's not enough Gardaí out on the beat. The Gardaí themselves say that they don't have uh, enough. And yet when something like this happens, at the Bank of Ireland and there's queues forming to take money out of machines. There seems to be Gardaí, you know, seems to be enough Gardaí to be able to go around and stand and man the Gardaí machine and disperse uh, the crowd. Whereas, you know, where are all those Gardaí when some poor tourist is getting their head kicked in and, and ends up in a, in a coma in a hospital? That was the part that I found a bit galling. 0818103103. Your thoughts and comments welcomed. We are also... In a little while, going to be talking about teachers. And there is still a problem with teachers. It's both primary and secondary. We're going to focus on secondary schools uh, today on the programme. And there are many schools around the country advertising these posts for teachers. And for secondary school, it's a bit tricky because they're advertising posts to teach a particular subject. And of course, if they can't get, say, the biology teacher, it means biology then is going to have to be taken off the curriculum. And that is a knock-on effect for students. So we're going to be talking about that again on the programme today. But there's I mentioned when I was talking up the programme with Mark in the last hour that I watched on the news last night two lovely young uh, teachers and you, they would be they would be an asset I think to any school listening to the two of them speak they had they were heading off they were just about to board a plane to go to Dubai they were going teaching in Dubai they had been I think they said in Abu Dhabi but they came home last year and were ready to come back and yeah ready to go back into the Irish school system and they couldn't get a permanent job so they were here for a year and just said you know this, this is too much let's apply and of course the schools in Dubai probably took the hand and all off and probably paid, paid their fare and said on you come we'll look after you we'll provide you with accommodation and of course when you go to a country like Dubai the pay is better uh, they don't pay taxes which I know it, you can't compare like with like uh, because of that and of course they also have the fantastic weather but it just saddened me you know because I knew that I would be doing this interview this morning on a shortage of secondary school teachers and here were two young teachers who came back from teaching abroad wanted to return home, wanted to come back into the Irish system and said, you know, teaching here is great, the schools are great, but couldn't get permanent positions. So we need to, you know, we can't have it everywhere. We can't advertise these posts and then say, oh, by the way, it isn't permanent. You're going to have it uh, for a year. And if you have it for a year, does that mean you won't get paid for your summer holidays, for for example, at the end of the con- contract? That simply isn't good enough. But it prompted Jerry to say, Patricia, my daughter is in college at the moment. And she is hoping to become a secondary school teacher. She has already decided 
that she is going to go to Australia to teach. It appears that what they offer in Australia is a whole lot better than what they would be offering here in every way. So the Irish government needs to be approaching these students in the early years of college while they're actually training to try and get them to stay here if we are to have any hope of retaining teachers here in Ireland. By the way, Jerry says, I'm fully supporting my daughter to go so that she can reach her full potential and start a life over there for herself. And that's kind of regards from uh, Jerry. I just I find that text really sad. Uh, Jerry, that she's just she's even in college. She she isn't even getting out into the workforce, and she already knows that Australia is going to be offering her, as you say, a whole lot uh, more. And you're right, Jerry. We need to start working on those students before they even leave college, and make sure that what they're offering here what we offer them here as teachers, both primary and secondary, that it is attractive and something that they want to do. I mean, they go into college knowing that they want to become a teacher, either a primary or in a specific secondary school uh, subject. So they already know that it's a career that they want to get involved in, but we need to make sure that they'll stay here in this country. And what saddens me about your text is, Derry, and I can see you love your daughter and you want her to reach your full potential, but the thought of her going off to Australia, it's just so, so far away and the heartbreak of all those goodbyes at, at the airport um, it's just it's horrible it's really horrible on families some of your texts coming in on teachers that we're going to be talking about in a moment Patricia I'm sick and tired of listening to schools moaning the government are pumping huge sums of money into the education system be it with free books uh, this year for primary school free buses last year with the, the reduced costs this year in fa- fairness I'm wondering is it time for grind schools and online learning to be introduced and encouraged. Many parents would like that option of home schooling. Yeah, but they say the socialisation of kids, that it isn't uh, great. Okay, on the whole issue of Bank of Ireland and what happened with Bank of Ireland yesterday and their technical glitch and people rushing out to transfer money into, they were able to transfer money onto Revolut accounts, money that they didn't uh, have. And there were also uh, people then were rushing to uh, to ATM machines to get, I think it was up to a thousand euro could be taken out. This was a thousand euro that they didn't have. And then the Gardaí were out manning all of the ATM machines. Um, hi Patricia the Gardaí have to protect the bank if there was a run on the banks the banking system here would collapse for a whole range of reasons but you see there wasn't a run on the bank. What was happening was people were going to the ATM machines to see if they could get access to this money that they didn't have in their accounts. What would have happened as often happens the ATM machine just runs out of money. There's only a limited amount of money uh, is in it. So you know protecting the ATM machines was just protecting the cash that was in that ATM machine. I mean if you've ever been anywhere where it's very busy because there's a festival on and the ATM machines will run out of money This back in the day now before you were able to tap and you were able to do most of your banking on your card or on your phone and there'd be queues outside ATM machines and then suddenly there'd be a groan because it had run out of money. So protecting, that wasn't a run in the banks, it was a run just on that particular ATM uh, machine. And Jerry says, Patricia, if people felt there was a risk to their money, savings, etc. in the bank, they would have withdrawn it 
all. So would businesses. It's all to do with confidence in the bank here and abroad. The Gardaí protecting the bank was a big statement, I feel, to all here and abroad. We will protect the banks and your savings and banking in general is safe. No, I again, I, don't, I, I, I disagree. That, I mean, there wasn't anything to suggest yesterday what was going on, that the Bank of, uh, of Ireland or indeed any of our banks are making huge profits at the moment, that there was anything wrong with the bank other than it was an IT glitch that suddenly was, was allowing people to take out more money than what was in their accounts. Some people, you know, who had zero in their accounts suddenly realised they could take out up to a thousand euros. So no, it was nothing to do with something being wrong at the bank. It was purely down to a technical uh, glitch. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie. Cork today on C103. Hundreds of post-primary teaching posts still remain unfilled ahead of the return to school at the end of this month with over 400 posts advertised on the education recruitment website educationposts.ie To talk about it from a teacher's point of view I'm once again joined by Georgine O'Brien who's President of the Association of Secondary School Teachers of Ireland Good morning to you Geraldine morning Patricia thank you for having me. Well our pleasure. Timetables and curriculums will all be set out well in advance of the first day of term. So do we take it now that schools are possibly already being forced to remove some subjects from the timetable? That is quite possible Patricia that is quite possible because does any management, does any principal want to have a classroom full of students where there isn't a science teacher sitting in front of them, a physics teacher, a home economics teacher, an Irish teacher, and there is no evidence in sight that that will be addressed fairly quickly. As you say, the timetables have been put in place. Now, there may be uh, with the initials A or B because they hadn't recruited the personnel at that stage, but the timetables are done. I mean, we're less than a week out from the return to school. Less than a week Mm. out from the return to schools and over 400 unfilled teaching posts, as you outlined there very clearly at the uh, start of this. Uh, I mean, it's crisis point. Do you you know, are they across all subjects or or, are some subjects more hard to find a teacher? I mean, at one stage it used to always be the STEM subjects, say the science subjects. Are they still tricky to get posts filled? You're absolutely uh, correct, uh, Patricia. Initially, it was the same subject. Now, it has transversed all subjects. Teachers are hard to recruit by management in all subject areas. It's not just peculiar to one subject or a few subjects anymore. It's across all subject areas. Unfortunately, that is that is the situation. And, you know, it, the situation has predated this minister, Minister Foley, to be fair to her, it has predated her term of office. But the situation has grown incrementally over the last number of years. It is worsening year on year. And now at that crisis point. Very unfair on students. That's the difficulty, Patricia. Who does this impact on? On health and safety grounds, management will be very loath to leave, will not leave, I should say, maybe more, more uh, or if you have um, a dividing room with a partition, you may have one teacher trying to supervise uh, two classrooms. 
they will not leave a group of students unsupervised because on, on health and safety grounds, that cannot happen. However, supervision is no substitute for teaching yeah. and learning by the qualified practitioner on the ground. They're two very, so, very different things. And, and I, I, I know roles. Dublin schools, uh, Georgian, have a huge issue attracting teachers and obviously that's to do with the accommodation crisis and the cost of accommodation uh, in, in the city. But are you also hearing that rural areas and urban towns can also struggle with that accommodation issue? Oh, accommodation is a huge issue, Patricia. And as you said, the East Coast and Dublin in particular, the crisis point, it is acute. The housing crisis is acute. And we have evidence from the, in the ASTI that teachers have, are giving up long-term teaching posts, six, eight, ten years, permanent contracts, and they're moving to rural areas uh, because they can better afford the uh, cost of, of housing. However, that said, we have been uh, told, um, as recent as yesterday, that even in quite rural areas of Cork, the, the uh, teacher shortage is quite severe. So it's not unique now to the cities. Yeah, and just actually just on the city, because I, I saw, I heard the Labour TD, Aidan O'Reardon, he, was, he had suggested it before, but I, I saw it in the papers today that they, the government have shot down the suggestion of a special allowance for teachers to live in, in Dublin. It's, it's a waiting that's done. I know they do it in London, because obviously the cost of accommodation is London is much more higher than other parts of, uh, of England. But is, is that something that the ASTI would be in favour of, some kind of a you know, um, an extra special allowance for teachers in Dublin? Well, that would be one option. But really, as it is, Patricia, we have a two-tier salary scale. So introducing another tier may not be advisable. But what the government could do is the initiative that they have in other European countries where um, housing is ring-fenced for at, a, at affordable prices, I, I, at affordable prices for key workers. So the, the government could do that. They, they could, uh, but they could address the housing shortage by allocating uh, X number of houses in, in an estate, in, in, in a new development, for affordable housing for key workers. And, you know, it's not just teachers, for key workers. Nurses, doctors. On, exactly. But yeah. it's not on the government's agenda. So the need to be creative, the need to uh, think outside the box and introduce some measures that will address this current crisis. If a student, as you said previously, um, the timetables are, are compiled at this stage, the curriculum is in place. If a student wants to pursue, say, for instance, physics, and that's, what the, it, that's their dream, they want to become a physics teacher, they want to go on and study physics in college, right, become a physicist, so, what impact will that have on the student? They go back to school in next week and say, they're told we cannot offer physics this year. That's their dream. That's their dream white team. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, yeah I've, I've a friend of mine who's um, a wonderful young daughter is training to be a vet. It's all she's ever wanted to do. So when she would have got into first year, she already knew the subjects that she would have to start picking aiming for this leaving cert 
for what she would need in order to train to be a vet. And, and I'm just thinking if she went to a school and the teachers and there will be other young people like that who are very focused on their career and it can be taken away from them almost as young and as early as when they enter secondary school. But that, that's the difficulty, Patricia. And children today with the, the internet and all the facilities of it can research very, very quickly what are the requirements for the course. And yeah. the students are doing that. They're also getting in, in, in school career guidance at a much younger age. So they're very focused on the choice. Yeah. They're very focused on what they want to do. As you said there, the um, example of your, of your friend's daughter wanting to do veterinary. The, the students are focused. They know the subject. They know if, if I want to do veterinary, I haven't a ghost of a chance in college if I haven't done biology yeah, uh, yeah. for research. Yeah, and then, and you would have, and, and I know I've read about this in the paper, and I'm assuming you probably know some of the schools. There are schools saying that when they advertise the post, they don't even get one application. Not even one application for an advertised post. It seems isn't incredible. That, isn't that incredible? Yeah. Isn't that incredible to think? Not one application. God be with the days when principals would have to sift through uh, a stack high of CVs. So many would be applied. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- yeah, there would be a big, big push uh, for, for, for teaching jobs. And yet, and, and I, re- I mentioned this earlier, George, and I was watching on the news last night, those two young teachers who, I don't know if you saw it, they were about to get on a plane to go to Dubai. And they had come back from working in Abu Dhabi. They were back last year, ready to go back into the school system here in Ireland, but couldn't get a permanent job. And then I, I'm seeing in the papers today that of those unfilled training posts, only 12, 12% of them are permanent positions. You can kind of understand why so, so many of the young people are going abroad if they can't even get a permanent position here. What, what's going on with those? But that, that really is the kernel of the problem. Fixed-term positions, part-term contracts. Teachers are finding it difficult to live on a full salary. They've gone to college, they have done four years in an undergraduate degree, two years for a PME at a cost of 6000 extra per year. The cost of that, and then they apply for a job and they're offered a six-hour contract. How can they live on it? That culture of part-term contracts and fixed-term contracts needs to be buried for once and for all. We need to have permanent contracts. Now, I know it's subject to a teacher completing their probationary year satisfactorily and that's a requirement and I know all of that but after the one year they get be, a yeah. permanent contract yeah, yeah. like who will come back from Dubai for eight hours yeah, and, and, and I know the Minister for Education was trying to lure teachers to return from uh, overseas, but I, I take it with all of these vacancies, she hasn't managed to encourage many of them to return. No, because they, they, again, they, they can do the research and they can see on the ad, is it a fixed-term contract? Is it a part-time hours contract? Or is it a full-term contract? Who's going to return from Dubai where they have a very good salary, a very good quality of life, lovely weather, right, for mm. eight hours of work. 
they won't be no. able to afford to live. And would it sadden you to hear me to 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 hear this, uh, Jerry? Um, a gentleman listening to us when when I mentioned you were going to be coming joining us on the program to talk about this issue, he sent in a message um, earlier. He's got a daughter who's in college at the moment. She is uh, training to be a secondary school teacher. It's all she's ever wanted to do. She hasn't. You know, she's got a couple of years left to do college. She's already made the decision. She's going to go to Australia because she reckons she'll have a far uh, a whole. It'll be a whole lot better there uh, than to stay uh, here. And um, Jerry says, well, you know, it'll sadden him, obviously, to see his daughter go to Australia. He wants her to reach her full potential. But he was making the point that she's in college and obviously there's other young people in college talking about it and making the decision before they even leave college. They've made their minds up that they're they're going to go abroad. So we need to get into those students in college and make this job attractive. We will make this job attractive, Patricia, if we pay teachers adequately. It does not surprise me to hear you relate that story. Now, I can't name the individual, but I had an email yesterday from an individual saying that she was thinking of training to be a teacher. She obviously has done her her undergraduate um, degree, but she looked at the salary skills and she wondered, when are we going on strike for extra pay? I'm not telling you any fibs. That mm. is in print to me as president of the ASPI. She cannot credit how low the salary is. She she actually made the statement in, in her email that people in administrative roles without any training, and I'm not taking from the people in administrative roles that perform a brilliant job, they are paid more than teachers currently. It's crazy. Catherine says, my daughter excelled in art, but unfortunately there was no art teacher uh, for all of her six years in secondary school. We ended up having to pay privately for lessons and she did sit it in her leaving cert. It cost us a fortune, but it was worth it. But families shouldn't be forced to do that. They shouldn't be forced to do that. But who can do the end of full credit to that lady? And I salute her and her family. And they may have done this and so, um, made sacrifices in other areas in the family. But that's what parents do for yeah. the children. Yeah. Is that fair? No. Is that fair? It's not. And it's not, it's not fair in families who can't afford to do it, would love oh. to be able to do it and who can't. Yes. All right. OK, listen, well, no doubt we'll speak again on this subject because it's, it's certainly not going away. Uh, Geraldine, thank you for that. And uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Patricia. Uh, good morning to you. That is Georgine O'Brien and Georgine is secretary, uh, or sorry, president of the ASTI Association of Secondary School Teachers. Hi, Patricia. My son has just taken a job in Dublin. The rent is literally crippling him. It's almost a thousand uh, a month. Yeah, you'd want to be on a good wage package for that, uh, wouldn't you? And of course, rent, everybody kind of feels rent is such dead money. Someone suggests, why can't schools share a teacher? For example, there's three secondary schools in Bandon. Could they share the teachers for the different subjects and, and pay the teachers more that way? Uh, would that be possible to do? I don't know. I mean, God, could you imagine the timetables? Would that be a bit ni- and a bit of a nightmare if you were sharing, say, a biology teacher between three schools? Could you imagine trying to work out the timetable? What school the biology teacher is going to be in? Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. Hi, Patricia. Our daughter is a physicist, and going back a good number of years, could not get chemistry taught in our local secondary school. She ended up having to do it outside. 
of school. If she wasn't determined, she wouldn't have qualified. Yeah. And 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 obviously you paid for grinds uh, and all of that. And you had a very, very focused young person. But it shouldn't be the case. We should. These subjects should be available, particularly for young people. And not every young person knows what they want to do, but there are people who get very focused on a career and it's all they ever want to do. And it's such a shame to think that they go into secondary school and literally from the minute they step foot inside the door of secondary school, the dream of whatever job they had could be taken away from them. That simply is not uh, fair. And someone says, Georgie O'Brien of the ASTI, everything she is saying is 100 percent correct. Uh, Nothing is new. It just doesn't change. Uh, That's what she said. It has been going on. I mean, I've been doing interviews about teacher shortages for a number of years now, but it's worse. It seems to be getting to crisis uh, level. Now, as we've been hearing all morning, Bank of Ireland says a technical issue which impacted a number of services have now been fixed. It meant that some customers were able to transfer and withdraw funds above their normal uh, limits. John Lowe is the money doctor and uh, John joins us with advice this morning. Good morning to you, John. Good morning, Virginia. Now, I suppose, firstly, do we know at this point what is believed to have, have gone wrong? Well, the statement from Bank of Ireland read, we are working on a technical issue uh, that um, uh, is impacting a number of our services, including our mobile app and 365 online. We're working to fix this as quickly as possible and apologize to customers for any inconvenience goals. And then they say, we would like to remind customers that if they transfer or withdraw funds, including over their normal limits, this money will be debited from their account. While we are conscious customers may not be able to check their balance at this time, they should not withdraw or transfer funds if they are likely to become overdrawn. That was the statement they made. So people ignored it. And they went and decided they would take out the money, up to a 1000 at a time, and uh, lodge it into their uh, Revolut account, and then go down to the ATMs, where there was an awful lot of people at ATMs trying to take out their money. Because uh, Revolut, for instance, is a, is a lock and load. It's a prepaid card. Yeah, so which a only, lot of people have. It's yeah, very popular. Two million. People. Is it two million? Well, two million in, in Ireland, yeah. yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, you go down and you, you put in the money and you take it out. No problem. So, and of the, course, social media played a huge role here because words went around that you could access uh, money that wasn't actually in your account. But, you know, there's a, mor- a morality question as well, but, Patricia. You know, I, not in a million years would I go down to an ATM knowing that I can take money out that's not mine uh, and that there's a record of yeah. Um, and that people will have to pay the piper at some future stage. So I can imagine there might be a few out there and there will be some hardship cases where like somebody, uh, father or mother might take out the money to pay medical bills for their child. And therefore, when the bank inevitably write to them and say, by the way, you owe us a thousand euros. They say, look, we haven't got the money. We had to pay this medical bill. And the bank will come back and say, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll look for 10 euros a week and after three years it'll be gone. So there will be the cases where the bank will... But they'll will... be thin on the ground now, let's be honest, John. <laughs> let's be honest, they'll be thin. <laughs> I mean, there is what got to me when I saw these queues, I mean, there's no such thing as free money. There's people waking up this morning. Mm. They're, they're, they're overdrawn. I mean, Yeah, I mean, the overdraft situation is, by the way... Um, you 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 know you pay for an overdraft. First of all, you pay about twenty five euros just to get the option to take out uh, an overdraft. You apply for it, and that's the uh, the overdraft fee. Um, and then you then 
get the overdraft, say it's a thousand euros, you're paying eleven point seven five, Patricia. And then if you have an unauthorized, as all these people did, it's double that basically. So you're looking at nearly twenty four, twenty five percent. So that's uh, just the interest on it. Now, if the bank, if you do not communicate with banks, say you, the bank send you a number of letters and you ignore them all, well, then eventually they're going to get fed up and they'll just decide, okay, let's uh, get a judgment against them. And the judgment is then, or her, uh, the judgment is then recorded and that goes into the central credit register.ie and then that's you finished as far as getting car loans, mortgages, yeah. your name is Mud. I mean, yeah. the number of people, for instance, who, who went over to Australia and they left behind, you know, as, as a, a young 20-something-year-old, uh, a 5,000 credit card debt, thinking it would be gone by the time they come back. And they come back 10 years later, they're married, they've got a couple of kids, and then suddenly they find that they can't get a mortgage, they can't get a car loan because their name is mud. Yeah, so you do need you do you do need to think of the long term uh, implications. But is this another example that computers can go wrong, can break down? And it's an argument that's often put forward when people are fighting against a cashless society, saying we'll always need cash when inevitably things like this happen. I don't think it's anything to do with cash. I do think it's to do with if I was a, a director of the Bank of Ireland, I would be wanting to uh, kind of immediately convene a board meeting and talk about IT because it's an IT issue that's regularly happening, uh, these glitches. And, I mean, also Bank, who left the country, they were a disaster in terms of IT. Every second week there was a problem with Ulster Bank. This is Bank of Ireland. Bank of Ireland have got these antiquated systems going back years. And they, you know, they made a billion the first six months of this year in profit. Well, they'd need billions to actually place all those hardware, software uh, computers. And, I mean, I'm not too far away from the, the computer center in Cabinteely, County Dublin. And, um, like, they're very, very antiquated. And they need to do something because this is going to continually happen. And this is, so, you know, I wouldn't be happy as a board member of Bank of Ireland. Uh, the embarrassment of this is huge, absolutely huge. Plus, you know, the PR end. Um, uh, and people availing of a kind of free money. And you're right, there's no such thing as free money. There's no such thing as a free lunch either. I mean, if, if you were, I mean, I don't know, you know, what the, the tallest building in Cork is, but uh, you imagine the, the top fl- uh, floor, somebody throws out a, a case full of, a suitcase full yeah, of money. Yeah, the top of County Hall would be an yeah, obvious Yeah, County Hall, okay. Yeah. So you throw out there uh, the suitcase of money, and you're walking by the pavement, of course you're going to pick it up and you're yeah. going to stick it in your pocket because that's money, cash, and you think it's free. Um, unless somebody comes down and says, sorry, um, that's actually um, somebody's money that fell out by accident. Will you please give it back, please? <laughs> you might think twice about that. But certainly this is where there's a re- record of you taking out that money. It needs yeah. to, to be addressed. Yeah, yeah. And what did you make of the guardie sent out to protect the, the ATMs. <laughs> Were you surprised by that? I was, actually. I have to say, because, you know, what can they do to an ATM unless you have a digger and you want to take out the whole lot and take the, the ATM as well with you? But this is, um, you know, I, I don't think there were any uh, kind of fights between the people in the queue. Waiting to, they, they seemed very orderly, any of the queues. Yeah, also. And yeah. I mean, the most that could have happened was the machine would run out of money. I mean, which, which can happen. Well, you know, a colleague of mine here in the office told me this morning that many years ago, Bank of Ireland had a problem where they were issuing 100 euro notes instead of 50. 
So you can imagine when that went out, and yeah. there was a queue a mile long, and of course, of course, the bank eventually caught up. All there was a priest as well, by the way, in the middle of the queue. Oh. <laughs> that, that's, that's what he said. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it, it, you know, the morality of it all, though, is it's so wrong. You know, it's, it, we're talking about honesty, integrity. Um, you know, being being upfront. You know, where's that gone? Where, yeah, where you're are? taking money that doesn't that simply doesn't belong to you. Yeah, that's it. That's it. It's not right. And it wouldn't be what our mothers and fathers would have raised us on, you know. Okay, now, and, I, and I don't know if this is somebody who, who went out to an ATM machine, says, quick question, please, uh, for John. If you had no money in your account with Bank of Ireland and you took a thousand euro out yesterday from your ATM, uh, how do you pay it back? Well, you wait for the letter, first of all, from uh, the Bank of Ireland. One tip I certainly will get is, please, please, please communicate. Do not ignore. Don't put your head in the sand. You need to communicate. And you will get that letter. And that letter eventually will come out and say, by the way, you're now overdrawn a thousand euros. You have no permission. Um, so you either come in and uh, negotiate an overdraft facility, whereby the, one of the main clauses of an overdraft is it must be in credit for 30 days of the year. Um, so you can have it as an overdraft, but at some stage you need to to start. You know, whether a lot of a lot of the banks now, if you have an overdraft and you can't get rid of it for that thirty days, they normally put it into a term loan for a year. So I mean, again, that case, uh, if you had a thousand euros and you put it over a three-year period, you're looking at ten euros a week max, including interest. Crazy, crazy. Yep. We, we wonder how banks make profits. Uh, John, we leave it there. Thank you for that. And uh, thanks for taking it, time out to talk to it's us. It's a real pleasure. Uh, good morning bye to bye. you. Bye-bye. That is uh, John Lowe, the uh, money doctor on what happened with AIB. If you did take the so-called free money, you was going to have to pay it back. Our Hours to Protect uh, series, which is on on Friday mornings at about a quarter to 12 on this week's Hours to Protect. We're going to discuss the value of hedgerows and discover why they are so important uh, to biodiversity and to uh, farming and I think a lot of people will be interested in that because people always hate if they see hedgerows being cut back particularly during this time of of the year when it's the no cutting season but then you've got other people saying we put too much emphasis on hedgerows and it can be from a road safety point of view some of the hedgerows do need to be cut back so we'll hear more about that in our Ours to Protect feature and that's coming your way on Friday. Now lots of comments coming in. Let me go to the banking issue first and what happened at Bank of Ireland and their technical issue that led to people being able to withdraw money that they didn't actually have in their accounts. Um, Patricia Charleville says, why didn't they simply switch off the ATMs locally? Surely every bank is a key holder that could simply go into the bank and switch off the ATM from the inside. I live in rural areas, says Patricia. We never see a member from Garda Siakana around where I live. Uh, but how come they could be, be, be there instantly for the banks, but they don't seem to be available for ordinary people? It's the one that's I think is annoying a lot of people about this particular story was the Garda manning the ATMs and keeping them safe for the banks. And then this is from Jim, who says, Patricia, yes, Yesterday with Bank of Ireland, all their computers down and no internet banking. As a result, I lost €63. Now, if you want to explain that to me, Jim, I don't know how you lost money yesterday, but he claims he did. uh, And the reason for it, he was unable to connect with online banking. 
He says, now they are back up and running today. But he ended up having to travel to Fromoy to where his local Bank of Ireland branch is. And he was met with a large crowd of people who were trying to make transactions inside in the bank, but all to no avail. There was only one cashier and then eventually a person came out and spoke to all of them, including Jim, that was waiting to say, sorry, there's been a computer crash, no internet, therefore we can't do any business today. Very sad, says our Jim, when Bank of Ireland have made vast profits and are still making more from individuals like me. He said, when our money is locked into a bank account and we have no access to it. Patricia, I remember when my mother went into a bank and the only transaction was to pay the electric light bill with very small change a very small charge to pay for it. Funny how times have changed. The bank was shut in Mitchellstown and they had us then go to banking online. What a laugh when people can, when people no longer are, well, I think that should be when cash is no longer king. Profit seems to be the name of the game, says Jim. And I did bring that up uh, with John Lowe, even though he said it's nothing to do with the cashless uh, society. But whenever things like this happen, people go, that's all the more reason why we should stick with cash. Catherine says, I was in Bank of Ireland in Mallow yesterday. I was just trying to take money out of the ATM and they wouldn't let me. They said that all of the machines were down, says uh, Catherine. Yeah, well, they, they they had a major technical issue and it was a nationwide uh, one. And then a different gym. Says, Trish, I heard a story once that I'm not sure if it was an urban myth or not. And it was in relation to the guards being phoned by a man saying, my house has been robbed. And the local guard that says, well, we don't have any guards Garda available at the moment with the squad car to send out to you. It's going to be about an hour or more. And the man said, oh, look, no rush. It's OK. I've shot one of them, so he won't be going anywhere very fast. According to Jim, there was a squad car outside the house with a few guards in it within minutes. And like that, with the guards being sent out to man ATMs all over the country, I'm not, and they're not of it. There's not enough to patrol our streets, like the Temple Bar area of Dublin. And visitors being assaulted by roaming feral gangs, as they've been described. Could the banks not just have simply shut down the ATMs? Uh, but anyway, they would have emptied fast enough if everybody was taking a thousand euro out. And Jim says, I thought you could six hundred was the maximum that you could take out. As you say, Patricia, no such thing as free money. They'll probably end up costing them more because they're going to have to repay it with interest unless they have the money and they haven't spent it and they're able to hand it back uh, today. And that's the point that John Lowe was making, the interest on that money. John Paul says he's seeing on uh, social media, I think it's on Snapchat, people are putting up pictures of um, some people in the Dublin area going into large electrical stores and they were buying big televisions uh, with the money. Oh God, I don't know. How does anybody think that they're going to get uh, away with it? 0818103103. And then on teachers and the low, we don't have enough secondary school teachers, we don't have enough primary school teachers. And in total, between primary and secondary, it's over a thousand posts are going unfilled with less than two weeks to the start of the next school uh, term. Josephine in Bantry said, Patricia, with teachers going away, it's not always about the money, it's more about the experiences they have studying all of their lives and it gives them the opportunity to have fun and work in another country no matter what they are paid. I would encourage all young people to go before they settle down. Yeah and Josephine I do think a lot of people do that but I think the problem we're having is that too many are going away and they're seeing this wonderful lifestyle in another country. They are getting better paid than they would be 
if they stayed here in Ireland. They're also able to afford housing in many of these countries and a lot of them are not coming back. I mean, we've always had, we've always had people travelling and going away for a couple of years and then coming back to their roots and then coming back here to work, be it in the schools, teachers, doctors, dentists, whatever it is, plumbers, carpenters, electricians. We've always had them go abroad, but uh, just not enough of them are coming back and that seems to be the problem. And too many are leaving immediately after college. Hi Patricia, is there a name on this? There isn't. Is part of the problem that so many teachers go to Dubai etc immediately after being educated here? I know for example two teachers who immediately that they became permanent then went to a Dubai for a year. They then had that leave extended so their jobs are held for them for five years. I pity principals trying to work out who they will have to teach or not. And I think that that becomes part of the problem why when I was talking about the number of teaching posts that are uh, available this year, and when you dig into the numbers, only 12% of them are permanent jobs. And that's to do with people who've taken those career breaks and have gone abroad. Their job has to be held for them. I didn't realise it was up to five years. So therefore, the school, when they're looking to fill that post, it won't be a permanent contract. It'll just be a contract for a year and they'll keep filling it year on uh, year. And that isn't very attractive to somebody who is trying to get a full time uh, job. And someone else who wants to remain anonymous says on post prime, uh, because he or she is a post-primary teacher, upskilled in teaching autistic students with a view to leading an autism class. But I cannot be deployed into it due to no subject teacher available to replace me. So I'm qualified, but I'm underutilised. And now unskilled teachers are instead teaching in the autism class. Very, very frustrating. Ah, And to have gone to the bother and the effort and set aside in the time to upskill in order to have the necessary skills to teach autistic students and then the class is there in the school that you're teaching in and you can't get in to teach that's I can feel your frustration from that text uh, for sure so fingers crossed that they will find a teacher in the subject that you teach in so that you can be uh, replaced and someone else says what do we expect politicians are not qualified for their roles hence why every every single department seems to be in crisis be it health be it education be it housing it all seems to be ruined trying to attract people to come home is like closing the gate after the horse has uh, bolted. Hi Patricia, on teaching, I applied for a position in my local school once I finished university in England and I was one of 200-ish applications. I didn't get the job but I did end up getting one in the UK. I'm now 36. I'm a vice principal. Uh, No way in Ireland would I have had the opportunity to be a vice principal at 36. And I know that that is an issue as well that some of the kind of the middle management roles in schools that had been there, they got rid of a lot of those. I think it was back in 2009 due to cutbacks and they haven't been replaced and therefore it's very hard for teachers to move up along the career uh, ladder and I have heard that. I have friends of mine who teach in the UK and that's one of the things when you ask them what's the difference you know teaching in the classroom can be the very same but the career path and the ability to move up if that's what you want uh, is much much better in the UK than it is here. So yes, is that another issue that needs to be looked at? It is uh, for sure. And of course, it is England's gain and it's Ireland's loss. 
that you're over there as a vice principal at uh, 36 0818 Joe says it is the same issues as last year. The government needs to act as every year we have this issue with teacher shortages or we also have another issue. We all never have enough seats on the school bus. It happens year in, year out. They know it's going to be an issue when it comes to school uh, transport. Can they not work out these issues during the summer rather than always waiting until the last uh, minute? And Joe is a student teacher who has already made uh, who has already made up his mind to move to Australia. Well, it's not fair. Oh, sorry. Joe was saying on that student teacher who's already made her mind up that she's going to Australia. This was Jerry was sending the message on behalf. His his daughter is training in college and she's already told uh, Jerry, as soon as I qualify, I'm going to Australia because she says the career path will be better for her over there. Joe was picking up on that. Joe says anybody educated in Ireland and going into the public service, there should be a clause that they have to serve in Ireland for at least three years before they le- leave the country. And that should be for all professions. And it's kind of a way of a payback towards the cost of their education and what the, you know, the state funded the education here and they should be made to pay it back. And other countries, in fairness, other countries uh, do it. You either work as a teacher, a doctor, whatever profession it is, or if you don't, you have to pay back so much of your wage to pay back towards the cost of the education that you uh, received. It's been spoken about in this country, no doubt. At government level, they've looked at it. Don't don't you know they've done reports uh, on it? But it's something that's never been introduced. Will it be introduced one day? I don't know. 0818103103. Our lines are open. C103 Jobs. An industrial electrician is wanted for a project uh, in the Middleton area. Now, it's it's a long-term contract for the right ca- candidate. You can call Hamilton French on 087-165-0527. Tria Oil Group, they're recruiting, recruiting for a rigid truck driver for the Cork City and North Cork areas. ADR experience preferred, but training will be provided. CVs to careers at Tria, T-R-I-A dot I-E. Nascara GAA, Milford GAA and Jermina GAA are all recruiting for groundskeepers. Then you must be eligible under a community employment scheme. Uh, email Evelyn O'Keefe at dealvalley.ie for further details. And Able Minds Montessori, they're in Grenada. They are looking for an AIM support position available from September. PTEC Level 5 res- re- references, please. And first aid is required. Contact Olive 086 052 You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Did you know that there could be as many as one million pieces of Lego at the bottom of the sea off the English coast? And it is possible if you're out and about doing a beach clean, you may actually come across some of those pieces. To find out more, I'm joined by Tracy Williams. Tracy is the author of a book called Adrift, The Curious Tale of the Lego Lost at at Sea. Good morning to you, Tracy. 
Good morning. Thank uh, you for having me. Well, listen, I'm really looking forward to chatting to you because I read the book and it, it really is a curious tale. Uh, and I have to admit, I was unaware of this story. So you need to take us back, I suppose, to 1997 and outline what happened. Okay, so in 1997, a cargo ship was on its way from Rotterdam in in the Netherlands to New York when it was hit by a giant wave or a rogue wave about 20 miles off Land's End, Cornwall, and 62 shipping containers plummeted into the ocean and one of those held nearly 5 million pieces of Lego. Now, initially, did a lot of the Lego just wash up on shore? We think what happened, basically, roughly half the Lego floated and half sank. And soon after the spill, helicopter pilots flying over the area spotted a slick of Lego floating on the ocean. And some of the Lego started washing up quite quickly. So beachcombers around Cornwall and Devon started to find it. Me and my family, we, we found thousands of pieces. We were living on the south coast of Devon at the time. And we started to find all these bits of sea-themed Lego. So most of the Lego was sea-themed. It was little tiny flippers and spear guns and scuba tanks. And if you were really lucky, you might find a Lego dragon or even a Lego octopus, which are the holy grail of uh, Lego hunting. But I think the serious message is that that Lego is still washing up 26 years on. Um, and it just goes to show how long plastic lasts in the ocean and also how far it drifts. So some of the Lego has been found in Ireland um, and it's also made its way to the Channel Islands and France and Belgium and Holland. And we've recently had a report from Denmark and a beachcomber in in Gdansk found a, a Lego dragon there. So it's, who knows it's, how far it's, it's going. And, and it, it, it was incredible that it just happened to be sea-themed. Yes, most of it was seam themed. It was just a strange quirk of fate that yeah. it was sea themed. Yeah. And but where, 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 where did you say it was going to? It was on its way to North America uh, at the time, but it obviously the, the container fell off at Land's End. So, and then it was going to be End. it was going to be packed into obviously sets when it arrived. Was that was that the yes. theory behind it? Yes, it was loose components, so they, the pieces weren't being shipped as whole sets, but rather as loose compo- components that would be made into sets once they reached their destination. But obviously, none of them did, and now there are millions lying at the bottom of the ocean, and we regularly um, meet up with the fishermen. Every week, the fishermen will trawl up Lego in their nets, so while beachcombers tend to find the bits that floated, the fishermen will haul up the, the Lego that sank, so they tend to find different pieces Whereas the beachcombers find flippers and cutlasses, the the fishermen will find Lego door frames or Lego life rafts or base plates, things like that. Yeah, the heavier pieces that would have that would have sank to to the bottom. And I mean, it's now nearly uh, a few years off it being thirty years later. What condition is the Lego found in? Some of it is in near perfect condition. Some of the uh, we think a lot of the Lego is probably trapped in sand. We think when it drifted ashore back in 1997 it got covered in sand in a storm so very often we'll find the lego that floated after winter storms when the the huge waves eat into the dunes and release a lot of plastic has been trapped a a long time and a lot of the floating lego is in still really good condition some of the lego that sank is in worse condition but again some is is 
quite good. Uh, sometimes you can only tell a piece has been lying at the bottom of the ocean for 26 years by the marine life that's growing on it. So some of them will have little tiny cup coals growing on them or bryozoans. Yeah, and and of course, obviously, the the talk to me about the effect that the Lego pieces will be having on uh, on the fish. Absolutely, uh, we we've not yet seen evidence of any fish having eaten uh, any of the Lego and ingested any of the Lego, but we have seen pictures of dogfish uh, trapped in Lego door frames. Yeah. We think they might be either swimming along the seabed and swimming through the door frames as they swim. So the fish are still alive when they have these door frames on them, or they may it may they may be becoming tangled in the fisherman's net. So once the fish and the door frames are in the net, they may get tangled there. So we don't entirely know what's happening, but we think it could be a mixture of both. But are you, are you worried? I mean, it's good to hear that some of it is near perfect. Are you worried about it breaking down, and 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 has some of it broken down? Yes, much of it is breaking down. Yeah. You know, if you if you look at it, we've got we've got a social media feed where uh, Lego Lost at Sea, where people can see pictures of the Lego we've we've found, and yes, you can see that it is getting it worn away. Although scientists, we we recently teamed up with scientists at the University of Plymouth to see how long Lego could last in the marine environment, and the scientists who carried out the experiment worked out it could last anywhere from 100 years to 1300 years. So. You know, it's going to be around for a long time. So it's good that, you know, any that we do see, we pick up because that stops it breaking down into mm. microplastics. And and why are these, the, the black Lego dragon and the octopuses, why are they the most coveted pieces? <laughs> I think a lot of people remember them from their childhood. Okay. They're quite iconic, I think, the Lego dragons. I think even rarer are the Lego octopuses. There are only 4,200 of those. And I think many people who pick up plastic from the beach do see finding a Lego dragon or a Lego octopus as a, as a reward for all their hard their plastic work. Picking, yeah, their plastic picking. So, yeah, yes. I watched I watched a, a young woman on on Facebook or on YouTube uh, who documented. She made a little, a little film out of it. Uh, she came all the way from America. She was yes. quite obsessed by the story and came all the way. <laughs> she didn't find, she did find a little fin. I was I was willing her to find something. She did find a little fin, but she was there trying to find the octopus um, or, 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 the dra- or the dragon. Um, and then also in, in, in your book, you know, you highlight other um, items. The one thing that brought me back to my childhood and um, um, thinking of my brother was the plastic toy soldiers and the amount of those yes. that have been found. Gosh, we find so many of those. And some, again, do date back to the 50s. Uh, it's quite extraordinary how many we do find of those. Yet, as far as we know, they're, we don't, they're all different ages. It's not like they're all identical soldiers you know, from one period, because if that was the case, you'd think, oh, those must be from a cargo spill. But these are from so many different brands and so many different periods. We think they must just all be left behind by children playing or even... Um, toy soldiers dropped on streets if you know they get washed into storm drains after heavy rain and, and again will make their way into rivers and then the sea so they could be coming into the ocean by many many different methods but we do find an awful lot of toy soldiers and I think they have, many people do remember them they have quite yeah, fond memories yeah, of yeah I mean you don't you, I mean I don't think you, you can even buy them now those little plastic toy soldiers but they certainly were the buzz uh, for a number of years and, and a really fascinating photograph of toothbrushes that have been found toothbrushes on the, yes why, there so why many so many People aren't bringing toothbrushes. I, I, my initial reaction was, is it somebody at sea, you know, on a cruise, but why would you drop your toothbrush into the sea? Where are they coming from? 
It's a bit of a mystery. And I always said my next book would be called Why Are There So Many Toothbrushes in the Sea? <laughs> the, we've, we find thousands. Some are, some are from a cargo spill. We know uh, that there was a cargo spill, must have been about 15, 20 years ago, because I've met beachcombers who've we remember finding lots of them washed up at the same time, and they're all identical. And he he said this particular beachcomber told me he'd found so many, he'd given them out to all the members of his family. But there was a cargo spill last, I think it was last year or the year before as well, of Dentalux toothbrushes. So, in fact, I've seen on Facebook today that more of those have turned up. So, But they do come from many different sources. Some could be from old landfill sites eroding mm. into the sea. When I've been in London, I've noticed toothbrushes lying on streets, so I don't know if people clean their teeth while they're on the way to work. It's, it's a mystery. Yeah, and of course, they're, again, it's it's the plastic. It's to try and get stop us all using the plastic. And the other one, yeah. I saw a photograph, the hair curlers, a lot of hair curlers. Yes, I think those, many people have memories of those and their, their grands wearing those old plastic hair curlers. Yeah, again, yeah. some of those date back to the 50s. Yeah. And we, those are something else that we find... Um, they're often buried in sand and we find those after winter storms. And I think they're, maybe people have been sitting on the beach in their curlers in the past. Like, who knows? <laughs> but certainly we, we find a lot of curlers. And again, they, many people have memories of those. So, you, so you're, you're out and about. You do a lot of beach cleaning, obviously, um, Tracy. I go out yeah, two or three times a day. So I, but I usually go out really early. So I'll go out you know, at six or seven uh, in the morning and with my dog and we'll, we'll pick up plastic as we go. And I think if everybody does the same, it, yeah. it all helps, doesn't it? We have, we have a lot of really, really good uh, beach cleaning groups uh, here in, in Cork there. And a lot of young people are involved uh, with them and they're just fantastic, the work uh, that they do. And, and, you know, I always uh, talk about whenever we go to the beach, I mean, if everybody, even if you're just going out for a walk, if you just pick up three, if everyone picked up three, three pieces of plastic each, just put it in your pocket and then just, you know, get rid of it when, when you come back. I mean, I know it's all small, but it does make a difference. Absolutely and it doesn't have to be the beach because 80% of uh, litter found you know, in the ocean on beaches is thought to come from the land so if it, you could be in a park or a street and pick up a few pieces as well and that all helps it helps prevent it going into the sea so I think everybody can do their bit if they want. Yeah, but it's, it's it can be really interesting as well. You know, you know, you just never know what you might find. Yeah, what what's the story behind what's it? What's your most unusual find? Or is that a tough question to ask? Oh, it's a really tough, tough question. But we we had uh, we did find some shipwreck cargo, which was oh. quite interesting, and that that was turned into. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It was short film, so... Yeah. Well done. Well, well, well done. Well <laughs> done. And you've got, as you said, there's a Facebook page if people want to log on and take a look at it. It's, it's Lego Lost at Sea. And if you do find particularly Lego, um, upload the photograph and, and send it on because I know Tracy and the gang would, would love to see from it. And your book is, is wonderful. It's called Adrift, the Curious Tale of the Lego Lost uh, at Sea. Now, I only had a, a PDF copy of it, but it's gorgeous. The pictures in it and everything. It's a, it's a stunning, stunning book. 
Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I was lucky to work with a really good designer and illustrator. Well, it's excellent. It's excellent. Listen, Tracy, I've really enjoyed our chat. Thank you for that and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, good Bye-bye. morning to you. Bye-bye. That is uh, Tracy uh, Williams, who is the author of that book, Adrift Lego, The Curious Tale of the Lego Lost at Sea. Now, Carran Nature Reserve is set to host its annual Sunflower Day next Sunday. The fundraiser initiative, which only began last year, will be held to raise funds for the Nature Reserve uh, with 50% of the proceeds also going to Marymount Hospice. With more details, I'm joined by John Howard of Rathgormick Game and Wildlife uh, Club who run the Carran Nature Reserve. Uh, Good morning to you, John. Good morning, Patricia. And you're, and you're very welcome. I suppose for people who've never come across the Carran Nature Reserve, we better start at the beginning and tell me a little bit about it and how it came about. Right, it came about, I suppose, 12 or 13 years ago when there was boom times everywhere. There was building going on to beat the band. There was motorways. There was agricultural, all sorts of things. And we saw a huge loss of habitat and biodiversity. And we thought, wouldn't it be a great idea just to save a little bit? And we fundraised, basically, and we bought six acres on the foot of Corran Cross. And with the help of the local leader and various other organizations, we, we, we purchased it from our own funds, and we got money then from leader and various other people to develop it. And when I say develop it, we haven't developed it pristine because we don't want that. Okay. We have walkways in it and we have a lot of it left as it was then inside in the middle of it we have a duck pond where there are various species living such as water hens along with all kinds of dragonflies at the moment, frogs, newts and things like that then we have a butterfly and bee biodiversity garden there is various planting obviously the sunflowers wildflower meadows and different crops to suit the wildlife. It sounds fantastic. It really sounds fantastic. And a lot of it, as you say, it's just rewilding. You're giving it back to nature. A lot of it is just rewilding. And then we have harnessed the local power there to get electricity. So we have solar power and we have wind power. And we have a little water feature there, which the solar power is driving that. And we put in a composting unit last year, which is almost completed now. And there are various other little things that we'd love to do, but we just don't have the funds. I know, I know. It all, it all goes back to the, the necessary funds. And and who who does the maintenance? I mean, I'm assuming there is some maintenance that has to There's be done. There's an awful lot of maintenance. Yeah. And we're blessed in that we have two fast workers here every morning. Brilliant. And they're great lads, and they do, they do a huge job in the maintenance. Other than that, it's the members of the club and it's all voluntary. And it's and it's the Nature Reserve then is open for free for people to visit, is it? It's open to the public free of charge every day of the year. And we have permission from Quilter then to use our car park, which is the Corran Cross Car Park, which everybody in the locality will know. And you a lovely walk then down through the woods to access the Nature Reserve. And as I said, it's free of charge to the public. The only thing, two things we ask really is, number one, that they don't bring dogs. Okay. We have a strict no-dogs policy. And number two, that they leave it as they find it, take home their rubbish. Well done. And do, and do people do, are, are people good about that? They're very good at that. Yeah. You will get the odd one that chances that I am bringing in a dog and that doesn't amount to harm. Does it? 
Yeah, it does because the wildlife don't realise whether the dogs are on a lead of them. Oh, of course, that. of course, uh, of course. And particularly the ducks in the pond. And if somebody goes down there with a dog, it frightens the life out of the ducks. And did I read somewhere you reintroduced the native grey partridge? We're reintroducing the native grey partridge. Now, it's it's a tough job, um, but we're going to keep at it. So we're rearing them in captivity and then we're releasing them when they're about three months old and hoping for the best. OK, well done, well done. And, and is that soon? You're hoping to do that? Have they... Yeah, we have a few of them released at the moment, so yeah. people will be able to see them now on Sunday. Yeah. And we have a lot more just about to be released. OK, keep a lookout for those if if you're going along. Now, yeah. if, if funding is is obviously is, is an issue. As you say, there's more that you, that, that you could do. That's why next Sunday is important, is it, to you? Next Sunday is vital because while we have a donation box at the entrance, an awful lot of people are just passing it by. And unfortunately, the expenses are far outweighing the maintenance costs at the moment. So this fundraising day is vital to us. Tell me about the sunflowers that you planted. The sunflowers then, we always grew a few of them, but two years ago we were approached by a local lady, Lorraine Campbell, and she's delighted with sunflowers, and she asked us would we consider doing something for charity. And that's how the the sunflower day came about then. So we said we'd do 50-50. Okay. And have you have you many sunflowers? We have about a quarter of an acre. Whoa, that's a lot of sunflowers! It must yeah. it must look gorgeous at the moment, doesn't it? It looks fantastic Does today it? now, and look, we'll keep the fingers crossed for Sunday. Okay, and w- will people be able to pick some of the sunflowers? Are you, are, they will. Yeah, they you're will. allow you're allowing people to do that. All right, we're that's great. We're allowing people pick them, take them away take photographs, take selfies, yeah, there, family pictures, whatever. Yeah, it's lovely to, to go into a field of sunflowers and have photographs taken. And it's kind of a family day. Uh, did I see yeah, a bit of music on the day? It's a family day. We have music lined up from half past ten in the morning until, well, we're starting at ten until four. Uh, can I name the musicians? Please do, yeah, please do. Yeah, we're starting off. These are all local, local musicians. We have Willie Collins for my... Then Amanda Morrison and Kathleen Kremen after that. Becky Finnessy from Bally Saggart. The Power Family, which are local again. At one o'clock, we have Maura Connor and Lala Gina. At two o'clock, we have the Silver Lady. At half past two, we have the Fumai Concert Band. And we're still in the market for one or two more people. If anybody <laughs> would like to volunteer, okay. come in and well done. Well, well done. And people can just get their tickets uh, on the day. Is that how you're doing there it? There's no tickets. No, so okay. It's totally voluntary. We'll be collecting. You just give, give what you can afford. Give what you can afford, exactly. Okay. Yeah. All, all right. And, and, and I'm really, because we're all thinking about biodiversity and all trying to do our bit when it comes to uh, biodiversity. You listen to you, John. You were way ahead of yourselves, really. We uh, on were focusing way on biodiversity. Yeah, we were, we were, and we're we're doing what an awful lot of people are not doing. There's an amount of people talking at the moment about what should be done and what they'd like to do, and but we get up off our backside and we're actually doing it. Well done, well done, and it's open for what time on Sunday? Somebody wants to know. Kicking off at ten in the morning and running all day until four o'clock. Okay.
alright listen good luck with it hope you make a lot of money and that you, you get enough for what you need to keep doing the fantastic work that you're doing because I think it's these kind of initiatives uh, are just have to be encouraged and, and all the funding that you need you just it's yeah, just such a look, shame that you've even had to fundraise for it but anyway just before I go for anybody that can't make it we have set up a GoFundMe page okay and then they can follow us on all the social media as well to get the updates Okay, the GoFundMe page is Karen Nature Reserve Sunflower Day. Good luck with it, John. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks uh, for joining us. That is uh, John Howard of the Rathgormick Game and Wildlife Club and they run the Karen Nature Reserve. 0818 103 103. Just on biodiversity and all things to do with biodiversity in the garden. Don't forget that it is Wednesday, so Peter Dowdell, our resident gardener, uh, will be joining us after 12 today. So if you have a question for uh, Peter, you can get it in either to John Paul on 0818 103 103 or you can text our uh, WhatsApp to 086 2103 103. And can, I got this email in uh, and we got it in, I think it came in overnight Monday um, and we we did reach out to this person yesterday, but unfortunately they haven't come back to us. So all we have is an, is an email account for this person. But it, it's quite a distressing email. And the, the person, when you when I read it to you, you'll understand why they want to remain anonymous. So we're just for, for just for referencing in in calling it calling it out. I'm just going to re- refer to this person as Eva. That says, "Dear Patricia, I am in despair. I don't know what to do or where to turn." I know I'm not on my own in what I'm going through, but right now I feel so alone and so helpless. I've been struggling for months now with bills, like so many other people. But last weekend is the first time I had to make an actual choice between paying my rent or buying groceries. I ended up having to buy the groceries because my partner has a terminal cancer diagnosis and therefore he has to eat. I've been so stressed and so upset all weekend. To be honest, I've hardly slept or eaten I am my partner's full-time carer. I'm exhausted. I don't know how much more I can actually take. I'm wide awake again and it's coming up to 2am in the morning. I simply just can't stop crying. I can't tell anyone about the situation I'm in. I need need help. I really would appreciate it if you keep this anonymous. Isn't that absolutely um, heartbreaking? As I say, we did reach out to, as we're calling this person, Aoife, uh, yesterday. And if she's listening, please get back on uh, to us. Because I think more than anything, if we even could even find out where you're, you're emailing us from. I don't know where in the city and county you are because... And I know you say that you ha- you you can't tell anyone about the situation you're in. And honest to God, if I don't know if you've got family members that you could reach out to, because if anyone, if any of my family or any of my friends sent me an email like that, or I thought that they were in a situation like that, there'd be a queue of people would line up uh, to help out. I mean, and then if you don't want to go down the route of going to uh, family members, you know, there's there's the likes of people like um, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. The fact, for example, that your husband has a cancer diagnosis. I know the Irish Cancer Society, for example, they have a hardship fund. They certainly would be able to help you out. I don't know if you're in the vicinity of any of the food banks 
they certainly would be able to get uh, groceries uh, to you. There's also the, if you went to somebody like the social welfare, the the exceptional needs payment, surely you qualify for an exceptional needs uh, payment. But it's just, it is such a heartbreaking letter and you are going to make, you yourself, your health is going to go downhill if you're not sleeping, you're not eating. You sound absolutely stressed and I can understand why. I mean, if you're coping with your partner and a terminal diagnosis, that in itself is a hard enough thing to cope with and you're doing everything to look after and care for your partner. But then to have the worry, the financial worry of the bills have to be paid, the rent has to be paid. And I know I can straight away think you're panicking because of the rent. You want to make sure your rent is paid because you certainly don't want to be receiving an eviction notice on top of everything else that is is going on. But I also can understand why you went out and bought those groceries. Your partner needs to eat. But can I say you need to eat uh, as well. So if you are, as I say, we're just calling her, uh, if you are listening, please get back on to us because at least if we know where you are, we might be able to do the research for you and find out what uh, charity uh, groups are available in your area. But certainly there will be people out there who would be only too willing to step up and and help you out. I mean, maybe I, nobody knows family situations. Maybe you can't go down the route of going to your, to your uh, family, but you do. You're, you, you've made the first step to reaching out. So just take it to the next uh, stage and let's see if we can get help uh, for you. And in the meantime, I read it out in the hope as well that anybody else might be able to, because as Aoife said, she's not on her own. Anybody else who can point us in the direction that we need to point to Aoife in to get the help that herself and her partner currently need. Some of your commentary coming into the programme. Still getting comments in about banks, Bank of Ireland and what happened and people uh, realising they could access cash that wasn't actually in their accounts. Lisa says what people did yesterday at ATMs was stealing. They did not have the money in their accounts so they knew when they were accessing cash that it actually wasn't theirs. In Lisa's eyes, plain and simple, that's theft. And while using the their ATM cards, did they not realise that all of that, all of those transactions would be linked back to their accounts? They will have to pay that money back. And with interest rates so high, good enough for them, says Lisa. No sympathy at all. And the Gardaí, they're outside the banks. If people started fighting, then the public today would be asking, where were the Gardaí? So Lisa was in favour of the Gardaí turning up to make sure that there was, well... There wasn't any public disorder. I mean, what they seemed to have done, from what I can uh, gather, was disperse the crowd to stop people taking money out of the machines. Maybe they'd say they were doing it for the, for the people's own good. I don't know. Owen said um, on banking, had a situation where during lockdown, money started coming in to Owen's account. It was €50 Euro every week. He said he was kind of scratching, he said, because he was unaware who was putting the money into his bank account because there was just initials appearing on his statement along with his 50 euro every week. So when he noticed it, he inquired and said, look, there's money turning up in my account and I don't know where it's coming from. So they asked the bank, would you investigate it, please? It turned out it was a woman who was transferring money to her daughter who was at college during the lockdown. Now, it wasn't the woman's fault. It turns out somewhere along the line, obviously the wrong IBAN account got entered in uh, and therefore the money was going to Owen's account 
rather than to this woman's uh, daughter. And he blamed the bank. He said the bank were the reason they were redirecting the money to the wrong uh, account. Anyway, it finally got sorted and the bank got back on to say, yeah, we've worked that out. That money isn't yours, which someone said knew. I always knew it wasn't mine. Uh, But he said they then started to hound him to pay the money back. And even though he reckons their fault nothing to do with uh, him. And they're thinking of the poor daughter waiting on the money coming and wondering why mammy wasn't sending on uh, the money. Hi Patricia, just thinking about the whole Bank of Ireland mess yesterday. At every agricultural show or festival around the country where members of Angarda Corner are required, according to this texter, the show committee have to pay for the Garda service. I didn't realise that. So should the banks now not be forced to pay for the Garda time that was taken up yesterday? And when you think of how many people who have taken their own lives over banks' wrongdoing over the last number of years, then I actually find it hard to condemn those who took the money from the banks yesterday. Yeah, but like taking the money, it, it, as I keep saying, there's no such thing as free money. They're all going to have to pay it back. And my fear is that if they start paying it back with interest added on, they'll actually pay back more. They will be in a bigger mess than what they were in before they decided that they were going to take this uh, money. On teachers and the teaching post, uh, somebody said, you know, that they know if somebody's going to went to Dubai for a year and then got it extended on a five-year uh, contract and then their job because they waited until they were permanent before deciding to go overseas uh, to teach so that the job is held for them. And then I was saying, is that the reason, I didn't realise that they could do it for five years and is that the reason that the the school then can't offer a permanent post. Somebody said, yes, that is uh, the case. And this texture feels they need to get rid of that five-year leave of absence, career breaks, as now they're called, uh, for teachers. That would make it possible then for those posts to be filled properly. The teachers' unions would want to be bringing that up besides shouting about no availability of uh, teachers. And I wonder, would the teachers' unions start saying, let's end career breaks? Because obviously they would be ending career breaks for their own uh, members. And I did a look, I sort of did a bit of digging on the figures that are out at the moment. You know, the fact that there's 110, no, it's 1,100, sorry, 1,100 teaching posts remain unfilled and that's with less than two weeks for schools reopening. But when you look into the figures uh, for secondary school it's 481 posts are up on uh, websites looking to be filled and out of the 481 only 16 of them are permanent and then for the primary school it's a little bit better even though there's 629 unfilled posts in primary school 121, uh, only 121 of those are uh, permanent and I did see the teachers Union of Ireland, they're the other with the ASTI on today, TUI are the other a big union for teachers. Their General uh, Secretary Michael Gillespie was saying that the Department of Education needs to implement what what he calls real and effective measures if they are serious about tackling the crisis and the Teachers Union of Ireland did a survey of their members and they carried it out earlier this year and they found of those who were appointed in recent years only 31% received a full-time job upon the initial appointment and just 13% were offered a permanent position upon initial appointment uh, while it took a third of respondents more than three years to secure a contract with full hours. And of course, getting full hours, you receive full pay. If they're only on these part-time contracts, they're not getting, they, they, don't, they only get paid for what they work and they don't get paid for holidays, etc. And it's, you can understand why young teachers, they want, they've, they've, they've done all their 
time in college and they've, you know, for some of those young people, they would have funded themselves to college. Some of them will come out of college with with student loans that have to be repaid. So you can understand why they want to go somewhere where they are going to be paid. Anyway, the TUI say it's unsustainable if we are to keep teachers in front of classrooms, particularly in the cost of living crisis that we're living through at the moment. Uh, He said that teachers cannot exist on fractions of a job, adding that it is not surprising that so many highly qualified graduates are migrating to other employments are they're taking up teaching posts outside of the jurisdiction and going further uh, afield where they feel that they are properly valued. And then another issue that, and I did bring it up when I was speaking with Geraldine of the ASTI, the posts of responsibility, they've never been fully restored since the the pre-cutback levels. There was a cut by government, you'd have to go back to 2009 for this cut on the posts of responsibility and they've never been uh, fully uh, restored and actually most teachers uh, say that they'd be more than likely to remain in the profession if there was more assistant principal uh, jobs made available in schools and obviously it would help out the, the principals as well if they could have an assistant principal and then we had a teacher listening to us this morning who's home on holidays from, from the UK tried to get a job here couldn't went to the UK and at 36 as an assistant principal and was making the point that would never have happened here and it certainly wouldn't because of the unilateral cut by the government back in 2009 0818 and as I mentioned <clears throat> we've a little over Less now, don't we? Than two weeks to most of the children going back to school. I think the month, the kind of the last Monday in August, some of the children. And actually, I've heard of some first years are going back next Friday week. You know the way they do this; they bring them in on diff- different days. But we we are less now than two weeks to the actual term starting. And another way that you always know that it's the end of the summer holidays and try time to get everybody school bags packed and lunches packed and uniforms uh, ready uh, is when the Rose of Tralee appears on our television screens or appears on our newspapers and the Rose of Tralee contestants are all over the papers today because they're entering now what is the final stretch of their countrywide tour before arriving in uh, Kerry this Friday. All 32 roses gathered yesterday in the Royal Hospital in uh, Kilmainham and that was their first opportunity to meet the hosts of the show, Wondahi O'Shea and a new host for this year, Catherine uh, Thomas. And of course the next time they'll see both Catherine and Dahi. They will be on uh, stage. And of course, a lot of organisation goes into once you get selected to be a Rose of Tralee. I suppose that's when the real work starts to begin. For example, each rose was given a list of around 24 outfits that are needed for that trip around uh, the country that they're currently on. And seemingly those that arrived from America and from Canada said they were totally taken aback by the reaction from the local communities as they're travelling around to the country. They were unaware of how big the Rose of Tralee Festival is. Now the tour will end, this tour of the country will end when they arrive in Tralee on uh, Friday and then they're in Tralee for the weekend and then of course we get to see them on the TV when they take to the stage on Monday and Tuesday when the 2023 Rose of Tralee will be crowned. And Dahi O'Shea thought he was in trouble when he found out that he would be co-hosting this year's Rose of Tralee. The, and I think, I'm, I'm open to correction, but I think this is for the first time ever, isn't it? That Dahi O'Shea will be on stage and they've announced a, a new 
Compare and the new Compare with Dahi is going to be Catherine uh, Thomas. Uh, now Dahi has now welcomed the news but he said when he initially heard it he was taken aback and he actually said to the organisers of the Rose Chile did I do something wrong? But he said the boss wanted to move it to another step. He said there is nothing that he did wrong and when Catherine Thomas was announced as the co-host he said he said he's really confident that it can and it will uh, work. He said the organisers of the Rose Chile believe that the change will further add to the viewing figures and obviously Catherine Thomas is quite excited about it. She spoke very positively about the change saying the Rose of Tralee has modernised over time. She said, I think it takes a bit of flack for maybe not being particularly relevant, but I think that there has never been a more important time to have this competition. She says, we're celebrating 32 very different women from across the globe, their achievements, their differences and their confidence. Now, while the format of this year's show hasn't been revealed, Dahi said that one Rose will be on stage with one alternating presenter at a time. So you'll have Dahi interviewing one and then the pan, then obviously that Rose will go off stage and I'm assuming will Dahi walk off with her and then Catherine will walk on and there'll be another uh, Rose and then they'll walk off and, they'll, and I'm assuming it's going to be done something like that. So how do you feel about t- having two hosts for the Rose of uh, Tralee? Do you think it, it will work? Will it be better with two presenters? Your uh, thoughts welcomed on that 0818-103-103 and just staying on the Rose and I saw somebody was on about this Jimmy from Bantry is quite annoyed about this. This is to do with the Cork City Council They've actually removed a number of signs and placards wishing our Cork Rose Kate Shockensey well. Um, and they, they, they took them down because they said whoever put up those posters and those placards did not have permission. The signs were all of which were wishing Kate luck in this year's Rose of Chile were removed from locations around her native Ballincollig in recent days. They were in contravention of the city's council's strict bylaws regarding signage. Now some local councillors have pledged to assist anyone who wants to show their support for the Cork uh, Rose. Some of the placards it seems were erected by residents' associations. Others were put in place by local businesses and in one case, the Balancholic Business Association uh, put up one. And actually, Kate uh, Kate see the Cork Rose, only made a comment last week. She was being interviewed by the Lord Mayor of uh, Cork, Kieran McCarthy, and she said, I quote, the support has been massive in Balancholic. She said, every time I drive through, there's a new poster up. She said, it's really, really encouraging and it's very exciting and I'm thrilled. Well, God, if you go back to Balancholic now, Kate, there's got the raw... They're all been taken down. Two of Balancholic's local city councillors, now they've offered to help anyone who wants to put up some kind of a poster are a sign to wish the Rose uh, to wish Kate the best in the Rose of uh, Tralee. One is a Fine Gael councillor Gareth uh, Kelleher. He said anybody looking to erect a poster should send an email to servicecentre at corkcity.ie and you request permission and, and I'm assuming that they will be kindly enough to give you the position. And then the Fianna Fáil councillor Colm Kelleher said the city council was governed by local bylaws and by the Litter Pollution Act and it falls under the Litter Pollution Act. He said he had confirmed though that all the signs that have been removed they're actually been stored in the local area office of Cork City Council that they haven't dumped them and if people contact the office 
police they'll be able to uh, reclaim them and uh, Kate as you possibly heard on the news uh, is from Ballincollig but her parents are from Tralee and they actually met at the Rose of Tralee I've asked John Paul if we can try and track uh, Kate down I'd love to have a chat with her in advance of her take to the stage uh, next week but Jim was listening to that story on, on the news and hearing about the council taking down the signs in Ballincollig uh, Jimmy from Bantry said to me it is despicable and it's reprehensible to have council workers doing this by orders of others. What about signs and other paraphernalia that have gone up welcoming refugees and in particular welcoming the good people from the Ukraine? I wonder, said Jimmy, did Fingal Council in North County Dublin and the surrounding areas, did they go to the extreme, did they go to that extreme of removing congratulations signs and other paraphernalia for the winning ladies Dublin football team last weekend? Jimmy says, I have me doubts as the song goes. When will they ever learn? The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing, community and business supports all across the county. See corkcoco.ie. Bally de Hob, a summer and old boats festival continues with music and charades in the local pub every night. Street sports are on Friday evening at half past seven. And don't forget, it does include the World Turnip Race and a Kiddies a Disco. Fremont Cultus are holding their final session for this season. That's tonight. Music is by Ellie Marie O'Dwyer and they're all Ireland participants. Mission 10 euro and it includes the usual cup, cuppa. There will be a used clothes collection gag in hall tomorrow Thursday from half six until uh, eight. And walking in the footsteps of your ancestors is a beginner's guide to family history in Cork. Roy Bunce of Cork County Library will host a talk on tracing your family history between 12 and 2 on this Friday in the mill in Castletown Roach. If you'd like more information, you can contact Lorna at avendueblackwater.com or call Lorna on 086 Cork today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at C103.ie. Cork today on C103. Hi, this is Anne Rose Chile. Hi, I love watching the Rose Chile, but I think one presenter is enough. Dahi O'Shea has been a wonderful presenter over the last number of years. I'm not a fan of it being co-hosted. Uh, someone else says, Patricia, I actually pre- I'd actually prefer there was no host at the Rose Chile, even though I'm a huge fan of Dahi O'Shea. We're in the 21st century, time to move on uh, now. So how would you do it without a host just have the girls walk on and don't have any chat with them. I'm a, I'm a bit confused as to as to what you would do if you were to get rid of all of the uh, hosts. Uh, on banking, maybe we should go back to over-the-counter transactions, <laughs> like the good old-fashioned uh, overdrafts and bank drafts instead of using ATM uh, for customers. At least um, the banks would know if you have funds in your account before they hand you out money. Maybe that is the way to go. Mushra Platform are having their last dance of the season. Somebody sent in a text. It's next Sunday, three to five in the afternoon. Music is by Jerry McCarthy. It promises to be a great day. There's no cover charge. Everyone will be greeted with a big cade meal of falter and a cuppa. And there'll be a raffle for great prizes and a few pri- and a few surprises as well. Good luck to everybody there. Mushra platform dancing. 
last dance of the season. And the lovely Paddy O'Brien, advocate for older people in the city, has uh, contacted me. No, sorry, that's uh, something that happened yesterday. I did give it a mention. My apologies. I was just looking at the date again. I just quickly want to mention, remember yesterday we were talking about the tattoos on the, the Garda Shikona and the fact that three trainee officers were sent home from Templemore Training College in County Tipperary because of tattoos that didn't comply with the Garda handbook on uniform and dress code within the force. And we had a lot of people yesterday who were commenting about this and a lot of people felt now some people felt it was the right thing to do. Some people don't like tattoos and then others are saying would you get with the times please. There are very few Manelians walking around who don't have a tattoo. Tattoos have become much more commonplace than say they were even 20, uh, 30 years uh, ago. Well, the Higher Education Minister, Simon Harris, got asked about it yesterday and he reckons the rules on Garda having tattoos should be uh, relaxed. Uh, Simon Harris said yesterday, my gut view is that they should relax the rules around tattoos. But, he says, I'm very conscious that this is a matter for the Garda Commissioner. Okay, so he's putting it back to the Garda Commissioner. He says whether a Garda has a tattoo or not would not be a priority of concern for people who want to see more Garda numbers. And I think that's what a lot of people yesterday on the programme were uh, saying. He was speaking at a press conference and he said he understands that the Justice Minister, Helen McEntee, is also giving consideration to the age limit on people joining uh, the force. The legislation governing recruitment uh, for the Guards says at the moment that the maximum age that a person can be before joining the force full time is 35. Simon Harris says, I also know that when it comes to issues around the age of entry and the retirement age, that these are issues that the minister is giving serious consideration to. He says there are fitness tests in place and medical tests in place. And he says that he, he, he one could put forward the argument that once you pass the medical and the fitness, does it really matter whether you're 34 36 or 38 but he says that will be a a matter for Helen McEntee to consider but the tattoos doesn't look like it's Helen McEntee that's got to go back to the guard the uh, commissioner now Helen McEntee herself says nothing is off the table when it comes to supporting recruitment and retention she knows that there's an issue and she's got to do everything that she uh, can and of course she has come in for criticism over the recruitment and retention in in recent weeks particularly with those brutal attacks that have happened on tourists in uh, Dublin the government by, is also uh, not now expected to meet the recruitment figures of 1,000 that they set themselves for the end of this year. They're not, even with the the ones that went in last, it was last Monday, and I don't know whether the three that were talked about in the papers today, whether they went in last week's bunch or they were there a couple of weeks before that, but even allowing for that and what's due to come in in the next number of uh, weeks, they're not going to hit uh, the 1,000 mark. And even allowing for the Gardaí that go into Templemore, not all of them, not all of them pass out at the end. Some of them go in and realise, no, this is not for me. And when they get in there, like what happened, they'll spot the tattoos and realise this is not uh, for you. Uh, so then we're, we're certainly not going to have the numbers that Helen McEntee was hoping uh, to have. So maybe looking at the age, maybe there are people over the age of 35 who would consider being members of Angarda Shia Kona, but I certainly think they need to look at the tattoo one uh, as well.
because if you're out in the street and there's a guard they're coming to help you I think the last thing you're going to be looking at does he have a tattoo or not You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast Phone and text lines are currently closed Peter Dowd of the IrishGardener.com uh, joining us Good afternoon to you Peter Good afternoon and Good, Trish, how are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Hopefully that line holds up for us. OK, we're going to start with some photographs that were sent in and John Paul sent them on to you last week or the week before. I'm not too sure, but we promised people because these photographs came in that we would send them on to uh, Peter. And one was a picture of somebody's white hydrangeas turning brown. All the other colours are fine. Also, can I cut back a magnolia that has gone too big for where I planted it? That came in from Margaret. You can, or Margaret can cut back the magnolia now, yeah. Um, but if she does it, she will won't have any flowers next spring. So magnolias are one of these plants that they, they produce their flower buds now this time of the year, July, July August, for for opening next spring. So if you prune it now, you won't damage the magnolia, but you will sacrifice the flowers. So if you can at all, wait and enjoy the flowers next spring, and then the right time to do it is is just after the flowers. So probably depending on what variety of magnolia could be March, it could be April or even May. But uh, but leaving it now is is too is late in that you'll sacrifice the flowers, but you won't harm the plant. Um, in terms of the, the hydrangea, I'm afraid it's probably, whilst we're having beautiful weather now, we've had a pretty bad run of it. So it's most likely caused by just the rain, I'm afraid. Um, when when the rain hits the hydrangea flowers and it affects the whites far more than the other colours, uh, they just go brown. You don't get any of that lovely autumnal colouring that you would get from some of them when it's when there's too much moisture. It's either just rain spatter is caused the plants, the flowers to rot uh, and to discolour or there could be an underlying fungal infection causing it, but I don't think so. I think it's just a, just unfortunately a symptom of the, the amount of rain we've had this summer. But it'll be okay for next year? There won't be anything to no, worry about? No, it should be fine. Okay. Be fine, yeah. And then poor Therese sent us quite pathetic looking parsnips to say, hi Peter, this is the first time in years I decided to grow parsnips. I brought them as plants and this is what I get after all my growing, what went wrong. And they, they look quite sad. They do. There's a picture of kind of stunted uh, um, parsnips with with a lot of roots and not, you know, a lot of small roots and not much to eat. It's now the first thing is I'm assuming that she took the picture recently. So it's very early to have harvested them. You wouldn't normally harvest them yet. You'd leave it for another month or so. In fact, you can harvest them right through the winter into spring. And of course, the longer you leave them in, the, the more it's going to develop. So that's the first thing I would say. She probably took them out too early, but... There is still an awful lot of roots, which is caused by one of several things. It could be it most likely, in fact, poor soil. Um, what I mean by poor soil is is that it could be compacted soil or it could be stony soil, right, which doesn't allow any of these taproot vegetables like carrots and parsnips and these. They like a very open, well-drained, fertile soil with a lot of sand or grit where, where the root has no obstruction to grow straight down. That's why they're perfect in raised beds because you can create your own kind of soil environment in there. So I imagine that's the most likely scenario is that the soil is, is compacted or, or a bit stony. Other reasons that would cause it if, there were, if you were overcrowding them, which is possible. So if you were overcrowding the, the planting them too close to each other, that would also lead to it. Um, uh, and also, if 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 um, if you had put too much nitrogen into the soil, that would lead to an awful lot of leafy growth, leafy green growth, and poor enough root growth. But I imagine the the problem is 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 a bit of compacted soil or um or stones in the soil. 
Okay, Margaret's in Douglas. Hi, Peter. Our apple tree hasn't produced any apples this year. It's three years old. It's always produced apples. Any suggestions as to what went wrong this year? If it's three years, if if it was its first year, let's say, and it wasn't doing it, it could be the fact that there isn't a pollinator nearby. You know, she doesn't say whether she has a, a pollinating partner. And what that is, is apples need another variety of apple to be nearby for the bees to do their magic and, and other insects to do their magic. And the, that magic is quite simply, they fly into the flower of one, they feed on the nectar and they get the pollen on their wings and on their feet and everything. Then they fly into the flower of another one and of course they offload some of the pollen and that's what pollinates the, the fruit and, and that's what leads to the apple. Now, if you don't have another one nearby, then obviously that can't happen. Now, she doesn't say whether she has one nearby or whether... In fact, maybe she was relying, even unbeknownst to her, she could have been relying on a an apple tree in another garden, um, which may no longer be there. That's possible. Uh, the other thing, of course, is unfortunately that we're all we're all aware of the 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 plight of the pollinators, the bees and, and mm. pollinators. Their numbers are dwindling, and this is an effect of it. Um, it could well be that. Uh, also around, I'm trying to cast my mind back now to, to kind of May when they would have been in blossom, but the weather was relatively good then, so that yeah. shouldn't have been an issue. There should have been enough of them out. Um, uh, so I, it's 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 some kind of a pollinator issue, whether the, the pollinating partner tree is gone or whether it was just a, a lack of bees and insects around at the time. I'm not I'm not 100% sure. The, o- the only other thing that could cause it, uh, not cause it, but could, could help, is to feed those trees or that tree with some good quality sulfate of potash around the time of blooming. That's the other thing actually that I didn't mention and maybe I should have. She doesn't say whether the flower bloomed or not. So obviously if the flower didn't bloom or if the plant didn't bloom, uh, the tree, then it, 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 if there's no flowers, obviously there can't be any fruits. So if it didn't flower, then feeding it with something like a good quality sulfate of potash in the springtime will help. But if it did flower but didn't turn into fruit, well, then that's that's an issue with the a lack pollen, of pollinators, yeah. either a pollinating tree or the insects. OK, hopefully it'll get sorted for uh, next year. Here's an interesting one. Question for Peter. Well, it's more of a tip for others, says this listener. I was told to always cut my buddleia bush down to the ground every year. And that's what I always did. But due to illness, I haven't been able to cut it for the last three years. Now, obviously, it's massive this year. But more than that, it is literally smothered in tortoise shell and peacock butterflies. Doesn't that sound gorgeous? I'm now wondering how often does Peter suggest cutting a buddleia? And obviously, they didn't. It wasn't swarming with butterflies uh, when this listener was cutting it back. Yeah, and it's it's funny because uh, I'm I'm just on my way into photo here again for the the last of my my walk and talks where we're talking about the the importance of some of these natural connect collections or connections in nature, uh, and I've been admiring the the butterflies swarming on the buddleias here in photo, um, which I'm kind of laughing to myself because she's right they're alive with them. Um, I wouldn't, if you cut back Buddleia very hard every year, which is what she had been doing, what you tend to get is you tend to get an awful lot of leafy growth the following year. You do get some flowers, um, but not that many. If you leave it off and never prune it, you'll get loads and loads of flowers. But of course, it does get very, very big. So I would suggest uh, give it a light prune and not prune it back to ground level like she's been doing. Give it a light prune, maybe prune it back by about half 
either every year or every second year. So keep it in check is what you're doing. You're never cutting it back to ground level because as I say, if you cut it back very hard, you get an awful lot of leafy growth and not so much of the flowers. And of course, Buddleia, while it is it, it is overly vigorous and it is on the invasive list, some of the species, just to see it at this time of the year in full flower yeah. and be decked with butterflies, they're fabulous. stunning. Yeah, it's fabulous. Gardening question. I have tuberous begonias growing in a bed. This is my first time ever growing them. Should I lift them for the winter or how should they be stored? Well, the, the, the textbook advice, the correct answer to give is yes to once the last of the foliage has died off, which is normally kind of at the first frost, which could be November time, hopefully. Um, that's when you would lift them. You'd lift them out of the ground, wrap them just in a bit of paper, just keep them cool and dry for the winter months and plant them out again next kind of March, April. Uh, it's very, very straightforward. I know that, that, as I say, is the correct answer and the textbook answer. I find myself a, a lazy gardener. I don't always have the time to do that. So more often than not, I leave them out. Uh, they will come back year after year, but they definitely do weaken if you don't if you don't lift them. And if we were to get a serious uh, winter, if we were to get you know proper negative temperatures for a protracted period, it, it will it will rot the bulb. Um, but as I say, I leave mine out. They do come back year after year. But the correct thing to do is to to lift them after flowering and plant them out again in March, April. Margaret says, question for Peter: What is the, what what would be the cause of brown rust spots on my cabbage? It's a fungal rust. And in fact, I wrote an article about on the examiner, last, I think it was last week or the week before, on not on the fungal rust for on cabbage specifically, but we are seeing, which is probably to be expected, we are seeing huge uh, amounts of fungal problems in gardens at the moment. And it's because of, and this answers this question as well, it's because of the, the weather conditions. It's been, it's been excessively damp. And of course, it's mild. And that just leads to damp, mild conditions with poor air circulation leads to the development of these fungal problems. And that's what's causing this rust on cabbage. Um, if it's not too widespread, I would just simply remove the infected leaves. So any leaves that have the, the rust on it, just literally prune them off. Um, hygiene is very important here, too, when we're trying to control fungal problems. We all became experts on it with, with over the last few years. I don't even want to mention the, the COVID mm. word again, but um, we all became experts at disease control. And it's just, the hygiene is just as important in the garden. So in other words, if you're cutting a cabbage that has the infection, make sure you clean that secateurs before you move to another plant because you'll just spread the infection that way. So it, there's little enough you can do when it has it, except what we call cultural control, which is removing the, 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 the infected leaves. When planting, make sure you're leaving enough space between the plants that there's good air circulation around them. But unfortunately, this year, with the with the, the amount of rain we've had, it's very difficult to stay on top of these fungal problems. Yeah. Sean says, do I cut back lupins and foxgloves now or will they flower again? I only planted them this summer. The lupins, if you cut them back, now it's gone a bit late, but if you cut them, if you had cut them back earlier, so you can do one of two things. If you cut them back straight after flowering or even now, you, you, you're... Definitely, if you cut them back straight after flowering, which is probably a month ago, you would expect a second flush of flowers maybe now or during September. Not as good as the first flush, but you would expect a second flush. So do that and and you may well still get more. Uh, That's the first option. The second option is you let those flowers, those dead flowers in the seed pods, let the seed pods turn black and then you have your own free lupin seeds uh, which will either disperse naturally and you, you might get baby lupins around the garden or you can collect them yourself uh, it's very very straightforward just crack open the black seed pods um, collect the seeds and plant them into some some compost in a seed tray or little pots and you'll have your own lupins new lupins next year um, obviously if you're cutting back for a second flush of flowers then you're not allowing the seed pods to ripen so it's kind of one or the other yeah. um, foxgloves are a biennial 
So by the end of year two, when they're flowering, that'll be the end of them. Uh, so I would just let them set seed. OK, uh, here's a lovely one. I've got a large oak tree in my garden and I'd love to get a sapling growing from that tree to give to my daughter for her house and her garden. Now, I have a few saplings growing in my rewilded lawn. So my question is, do I start to grow one from an acorn or if I was to dig up one of the saplings, how do I transplant it? Do I pull it or dig it out? Thanking you. That's a nice idea to grow it from one. Oh, gorgeous. Yeah. Lovely idea. Yeah. Um, uh, depending on how old the sapling is. So if it's only a year or two old that has, you know, windblown into the, the, the lawn, it, it should transplant relatively easily. Now, the time to do it is certainly not now. It's the middle of winter. So it's kind of December, January time when, the, when that sapling is totally dormant. Don't pull it, no, because you'll damage the root system. So dig it out of the ground. Um, but if it's only a year or two old, that won't be a difficult job. Dig it out of the ground and into into a new pot or straight into your daughter's garden immediately. Don't leave it out of the ground for any length of time. And that should grow. Pay close attention to watering it next year. And that should grow. That would be the quickest and easiest way to do it. You could try growing it from an acorn from the tree, but obviously it'll just take that little bit longer. That that few, like The sapling is obviously it's that couple of years way. more yeah. advanced. Yeah. Hi, uh, Peter. Is there anything I can use to kill moss on a wall? I've removed most by hand but it's back again also can I cut hmm. back my camellia bush and what would you suggest feeding it for flowers for next year there are two questions okay well the camellia bush is the exact same as the magnolia one at the start of the piece uh, Trish where if you cut it back now you won't harm the camellia but you will certainly cut off next year's flowers because similar to the magnolia it has set its flower buds now to open for next spring so pruning it now will remove them so I'm guessing from the second part of the question that she doesn't want to do that because she's wondering what to feed it with to promote flowers so at this time of year July August is when you would feed a, a camellia or um, rhododendrons magnolias any of these kind of plants with, again with a good sulfate of potash or a good quality organic tomato food to, because they're high in potassium and high in phosphorus which will uh, promote the development of flower buds now for opening next spring so, and the, the, what was the first part of our question then? Um, where has it gone to? Um, the, the, the moss. Oh, the moss on the oh, wall. Yes, sorry. Yeah, the moved it by hand yeah. and it's back and, again. Yeah. So she, she the, there is a product called Mosco. Mosco is a well-known brand name for killing moss. Now, I'm not a huge fan of the, the traditional Mosco, but there is a thing called Mosco Probiotic. Uh, Irish made to the best of my knowledge and when you have the area clean of moss if you spray it with the Moscow probiotic it will keep it clean now there's nothing that's going to keep an area free of moss in Ireland again because of our climate it's warm and damp and moss will just grow so but the, once you have it clean that Moscow probiotic uh, does keep it clean for a few months, I would say up to six months, which is the, the best that you'll do. Then there are other products that you can put on that the wall that will kill the moss, uh, organic products that are very good. Algon, to the best of my knowledge, is the name of another Irish one. Uh, I'm pretty sure, and I'll double check my, the, the, before you get it, but I'm pretty sure it's an organic Irish product, but it is very good. I, I say it and then I'm not sure because I know I've used it before, but I hope I'm giving it the right name. If you know what I, mean. I, know, I know I've I know. used an organic Irish one before and I think it's Algon. OK, and a final one. I planted Sweet William seeds in the spring and now they're a few centimetres high. Where should I keep them during the winter and will they flower next year? They will. They're a bi most of them are biennial. Some are perennial, but meaning they'll flower every year. But most of them are biennial, which means they'll flower in their second year and then set seed and that's the end of them. Um I, would, I wouldn't I would be too worried about planting them out and leaving them outside through the winter. They should be absolutely fine. If if you don't want to do that, just, just keep them in pots. Um, 
But again, I'd probably leave them outside. I wouldn't put them in a shed or anything like that because it'll be too dark. If you have a glass house or a polytunnel, sure, you could keep them in that during the winter. But being honest, unless it was an extremely severe winter again, which hopefully it won't be, but if, if unless it was, they should be safe outside. OK, so you've got your final afternoon in photo. Yeah, looking forward to it. It's, uh, the first afternoon we did in photo where we were talking about the, the, the wonder of nature and how it's so important in photo. I was here in a big woolly jumper and a jacket and <laughs> scarf and hat. And now I'm not quite the shorts and T-shirt, but it's a it's a lovely sunny day down here now. So yeah, the last one of the year. Yeah, it's a nice day. And I should forecast for tomorrow is, is good as well. And listen, I'm, I'm ever hopeful. We often get very good Septembers in this country when we talk about the Indian we summer. Do. We do, and every year we're surprised. But I think, and I've said this before, I'm not sure if the stats back me up or not, but I think September is normally our, may not be the warmest month, but I think in terms of sunshine and dry days, I think it's normally our best month. Yeah, just as the kids go back to school. It always seems so unfair. All right, listen, have a lovely week and we'll chat next Wednesday and enjoy photo. And you. Thanks a million. That is uh, Peter Dowdle, theirishgardener.com. Can I get to, do I have time? I do for a quick text in from a listener. This is on the teachers and uh, the, it's Catherine Domami. says, Patricia, I actually take issue with one of your listeners who suggested that all college graduates should either stay in this country uh, in order to pay back the country for their education or if they decide to leave, they should somehow pay back uh, for what they got in university. Well, I can tell you, I put two of my four children through college with no grants and no assistance from the state. And at times I had to rob Peter to pay Paul. So to say to pay it back, I don't think so, says Catherine in Domanway. And there'll be a lot of families and a lot of parents will be nodding with Catherine who have funded their children through college uh, and did it all themselves. Uh, so, yeah, I, I understand where you're coming from, Catherine. Thank you for that. And uh, thanks uh, for joining us. OK, that's where I have to wrap it up for today. Uh, thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. Nick Richards is with you for the afternoon and we will be back with you for Thursday's edition of the programme tomorrow at uh, 10 o'clock. On to then, I'm Patricia Messenger. A very good afternoon. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. See MIG.ie.